Uh, it's really this sermon that led to the title of this series we're going through called Faithfulness, and I think it's fitting to preach on the faithfulness of a minister as we celebrate the faithfulness of a minister. But I, I thought to myself as I was looking at various texts for this week, you know, and, and, and how would I approach this, um, I've written this sermon kind of specifically with, with, um, with the new minister in mind. I imagined myself being invited to preach at the, um, the uh, installment of somebody who was taking their first role as a pastor. And so I want to talk today about faithful ministers. And as we look at this text, again, which says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul is giving this statement to the church of Corinth, obviously within the context of everything that has come through uh, chapters 1 through 3. And really what we see as one of the major problems in Corinth that Paul addresses multiple times throughout the book of Corinthians, though there is multiple problems he addresses, is that of divisiveness. There are those in the body who are creating divisions, and they are organizing themselves into factions based upon leaders, where one says, I follow Paul, and one says, I follow Apollos, and one says, I follow Cephas, and that's Peter. And then another group comes along and plays the trump card and says, well, I follow Christ. And I'm sure none of us here have ever known any church to be uh, organized around its preferences or desires or likes or preferred pastors. The church in Corinth was divided over these things. And Paul reminds them uh, very clearly in chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, of what role the minister plays in the life of a church. He says, starting in verse 5, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And then comes this verse that has been one of the most influential verses in my ministry. Uh, and it says, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. I was at a pastor's conference one time, and the pastor speaking of this verse said to a room full of other pastors, he says, brothers, we work the only job in the world where we get to take credit for none of the successes and all of the failures. And I think he's absolutely right. And this is not a bad thing, by the way, as we consider whether it's the minister, and really, we should all consider ourselves ministers. However many of us there are at Trinity, there should be that many ministers. God has given each and every single one of us a ministry. And we could throw our hands up and say, well, God doesn't need me, and that would be true. God's going to do what God's going to do with or without me because it's God who causes the growth. And that would be true. However, you and I, as the body of Christ that causes the growth of the body of Christ, are the chosen tools that God has for growing His body. Nobody ever looks at a set of 
cabinets. I used to build cabinets, and people would come into these homes, and they'd see the cabinets, and they'd touch them. And you know what they never once said when they saw cabinets that they liked was, look at what this saw did. I can't believe a sander did that. Now, the saw and the sander and all of the things that went into building a set of cabinets played an important role. But in the end, they were just tools in the hands of a craftsman. And that's, I think, the picture that, that Paul is presenting to us. Yes, you can organize yourselves around people and certain pastors and whatever you want and preferences. But, but in the end, those are just tools You're looking at the wrong thing. It's neither he who plants nor he who waters who is anything, but God who gives the increase. And this should be so discouraging to us. I mean, not discouraging, encouraging to us. I have not discouraging in my notes. Literally, my notes say not discouraging, freeing. And so the wrong word comes out of my mouth. But this shouldn't be discouraging. I am prone to worry. What's what's the future of Trinity going to look like? If, if we don't evangelize, if we don't share the gospel, is God still going to save people? Yeah, he'll just let another church have the joy of seeing that happen. What, what if we don't be faithful to the ministry he has given us? What if, what if I don't know how to lead well? What if I'm not a good enough leader? What if I'm not a good enough communicator? What if people don't like me and, and in 10 years Trinity is just an empty building? And all the while this text is screaming at me, Logan it's not up to you. You're not that important. You're not that powerful. Just, just be faithful to the ministry that I have called you to, and I'll take care of the rest. And it's such a freeing thought. You don't have to walk out these doors and save anyone. Only Jesus can do that. You don't have to walk into these doors and cause the growth of anyone else. Only Jesus can do that. We just get to be faithful to the ministry that God has called us Two, you don't have to save your kids, but guess what? you, you got to be faithful to the ministry to them. And so this doesn't mean that we don't play a role in the ministry that God has given us. Whether it's, it's ministers who are so professionally, or whether it's every minister in the church, it is God who is at work in and through us and by us and for us. And we should just be freed up. I can go in and play my role. I can go out and share the gospel. I can use my gifts in the church and in the world and leave the results up to God because he who plants and he who waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. Now before we think that this message is for just for pastors, I want to see a few things here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the opening verses. I left my preaching Bible at home. So I have a little bit of a different version in front of me. It actually reads like this. Uh, Let a man consider us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. A couple things I want to point out before we consider the the faithfulness of a minister is is it says, uh, should regard or let a man consider in these verses. Uh, the, the word let often is confusing, uh, especially to us in English, but when you read your Bible, I've said this before, I'll say it again, most often the let, the word let is showing us that there's an imperative in the text, that there's a command there. 
So Paul is not writing to the leaders of the church in Corinth. Paul is writing to the members of the church in Corinth, and he's telling them how to think about those who lead them. And so this text isn't like, oh, well, this is primarily one for pastors and ministers, so I can just gloss over this and move to the next thing. No, Paul is giving you, as church members, instructions. This is a present imperative, and there are present imperatives and verbs all over, and we've talked about this a lot, that this simply means it's always to be true. You should always be regarding your leaders in this way. And so the church doesn't get to check out. By the way, one of the things we know that is true of Scripture is anything that the leaders of the church are, they are simply examples to the rest of the church. And so when you get to 1 Timothy and you see all those things and you go, glad I'm not a pastor, you're not free of those things. They are binding on all of us. They are how each and every single one of us should live. And so here is how you, as a church, are required by the Lord to think of those who lead his church. And the first description that we get, there's two here, is that of servant. The, uh, the, this is not the typical word that we often think of, servant, diakonos. This is not the, the common word for servant or even the word for slave uh, in Scripture. This is uh, the word huperites. This, and maybe you've heard of this before. It, it literally is a combination of two words meaning under and rower. Uh, it it, it kind of developed out of those who were in the bottom of a ship, a low-level galley slave who would row oars in the bottom of a ship. Now, at the point of writing here in the New Testament, it is expanded way beyond that to military officials and others. But you know what's interesting to me? As I was looking at the way this word is used in the New Testament, uh, every single time somebody is described as this type of servant, there is the implication from their role that somebody else is in charge of them. This is never the top dog. This is never the, the five-star general or the president. This is somebody whose, whose role is, is to serve under someone else. It is possible that this word uh, um, conveys the idea of meniality, and that's certainly where it started. But military officials and officers were often described in this way. So when we, when we understand that, that the first way you should regard church leaders is that they are servants, we should understand that what it means is somebody else is in charge. Now, I am a strict congregationalist. I believe that the people in the church have a say in the direction of the church and the leaders of the church and the budget of the church. And so from here till uh, eternity, I'm going to fight for a congregational model uh, of church governance where the congregation gets a vote and a say in all those things. However, that is not what is in view here. Paul doesn't leave us wondering who the minister is a servant to. Is the minister, is the leader, is the pastor in the church a servant of the church? Absolutely. And there are plenty of texts that say that. But this is not it. This is not that text. 
This low-level galley slave is to be regarded as a servant of Christ. And so when you look at the leaders of your church, if you're prone to think, well, I, I give and therefore I have influence and control over you and over your job. You work for me because we are a congregationalist church. All the while, this verse is screaming at us, no, your leaders are servants of Christ. And they serve Christ by serving you. But we belong to him. And so the pastor, at least in the context of 1 Corinthians here, isn't a servant of the church, but servants of Christ. We aren't your servants, we are Christ's servants. Now, you should fire us if we ever stop serving the church. Don't get me wrong about that. But Christ is the master. And the second description is not only as servants of Christ, but as stewards. This is another really interesting word. It's a combination of two words in Greek, another compound word. It literally means house law. The word house and the word law are connected together, and you get steward. Well, a steward was one who was charged with caring for the estate of an individual in his absence. A steward, an oikonomia, would have been one who was tasked with caring for a landowner's home and finances and business and even family. And so the idea here is that the, the steward cares for something that does not belong to him. And once again, Paul does not leave us guessing as to what the church leader is to care for. He is to care for, he is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Paul, uh, for, particularly for Paul, uh, but really throughout the whole New, uh, New Testament, the word mystery always refers to something that was once hidden and is now revealed. And in Ephesians, the great mystery that Paul speaks of is the church. But here in Corinthians, the mystery he speaks of, and he's already used this word in the chapter, is that of the gospel. The mystery of, of this Christ who would come and would redeem his people. No longer a mystery. We know who he was. We know when he lived. We know how he died. And it has been revealed to us that by faith we, uh, we are, are brought into his family. And so the pastor is to serve Christ, but he is to steward the mystery. The mystery of the gospel. These are the tasks. Serving Christ is the task. Stewarding the gospel is a task. But, but Paul has not yet gotten to the character of the minister. And that's what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, In this case, moreover, in the case of the minister, the servant of Christ, and the, the steward of the mysteries of God, the most important thing that is required of stewards, that's what moreover means, the most important thing that is required of a steward is that one be found faithful. Faithful to the Messiah. Faithful 
to the message. This is not hard for us to understand. And maybe this is particularly uh, easy for us men to uh, to understand because God has wired us in a certain way as protectors and our brokenness has affected in a certain way. But imagine with me, if you will, that you knew you were going on an extended journey, long, years, maybe even decades. For Christ, so far, it's been millennia. And your family is not going with you. And you are hiring a man who is going to live in your home. He is going to care for your wife. He is going to manage your money. He is going to minister to your children. What is the single most important characteristic in the person that you want to hire? Competence or character? Of course we would all say character. And what kind of character would you want that man to have? You would want him to be faithful. You would want him to be faithful to your instructions. You would want him to be faithful to your plan. You would want him to be faithful in the way that he cares for your wife and your children. In fact, and there's probably implications of this for us when it comes to the church, you would want him to be faithful to your desires over the desires of your children and potentially even your wife. You would want him to conduct himself in exactly the way that you instructed him to lead. Faithfulness would be the single most important characteristic that I would want in any man tasked to care for the most precious things in my life. And that's what Paul says is the most important characteristic of the church, or of the the church leader, that he be found faithful, faithful to serve the Savior Faithful to steward the gospel. Again, the use of present tenses and imperatives in this passage tell us that that this should always be the way that the church is regarding uh, its leaders. But not only that this is the way the church is to regard its leaders, but that the church's leaders are to always be found faithful. And sadly... The headlines are full and the documentaries that are coming out are pretty quick in coming of leaders who are not faithful and who have not been faithful. You know what's the only thing that is worse than those men not being faithful? Not being found out. And so while I'm sad that there are so many leaders in the church who are proving themselves to be unfaithful to the Messiah and unfaithful to the message. I'm not sad that it's coming to light. I'm not sad that Christ is dealing with those things in the church. But the question for us becomes, faithful to what? Faithful to what? And I want us to look at several passages today. And uh, I don't have one of the outlines in front of me. How many points do you have in front of you there? Seven points. We're going to move fast, I promise, okay? 
uh, seven ways that a, a minister must be faithful. Number one, and these are in no particular order. Uh, maybe the first one is in a particular order. The rest really are not. Number one, a minister must be faithful to his family. A minister must be faithful to his family. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, Therefore, an overseer, that's just another word for elder. I'll give you a little bonus tip here. When you see the words overseer, pastor or shepherd, and elder in the church, they refer to the same office. If you want to see this, uh, look at Acts 19. You can see when Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to him, and he tells them to shepherd, that's the word pastor, the flock of God, exercising oversight. If you want to understand maybe why does the, why does the New Testament use those three words uh, for leaders in the church, I think elder refers to the honor of the role. I think pastor or shepherd refers to the work of the role. We should be appointing men into positions of leadership as elders and pastors in the church who are shepherding, not business administrating or organizing. Not that those things aren't important, but the, the role of an elder has honor. The work is to shepherd, but he does it exercising authority, and so he is called to oversee the church. But 1 Timothy 3.2, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. First Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I think one of the big pictures here is that when it comes to kids is not necessarily are all of his kids believers because both First Timothy and Titus seem to indicate uh, children living in the home. I think what, what Paul is getting at in both of these is if a man is weak and unwilling to discipline his children, he'll be unwilling to do hard things in the church as well. And so when we see a man at home and how he loves and leads his wife and loves and leads his children, we get a picture of what he will be like in the church. Titus 1.6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one, of one wife and his children are believers, this is still a verse that's up for interpretation, by the way, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I want to look, as we look at each of these, I want to consider what this means for the pastor and elder, and I want to consider what it means with the church. Uh, for the pastor and elder, both texts refer to elders' wives and children, uh, plural, because there are plural elders, not because a man can have multiple wives. Literally, what the text read is he is to be the husband of one, or the man of one woman, husband and wife are the same, and or husband and man and wife and woman are the same words in Greek. There's no distinction there, so it is literally a one woman man. He is to be faithful to his wife sexually. He is to be faithful to his wife emotionally. It would not be satisfactory for a man to give his heart to another woman and lead the church, uh, even if he did not do anything physically with that woman. He is to, as Ephesians 5 and 6 say, to love her by nourishing her and cherishing her in order to present her spotless on the day of Christ. He is to faithfully discipline his children and instruct them in the faith. His household is to be managed well in this way, caring for his family, uh, teaching them the word of God. That's what it means to be faithful in this context. What about the church, though? What does this mean for the church? I would say 
be careful with your demands and requests. I know that, I know that nobody does this intentionally, but in a church, uh, there are many people vying for time and attention, our time and attention, and we love to give it. However, it seems to be true, and I'm making some real generalities here, so I'm not picking on Trinity, okay? But it seems to be true that if a pastor is invited to something and he says, I can't do that because I'm spending time with my family, he would be begged to neglect that. Because after all, his family will be there the next day and the next day versus another appointment or seeing somebody else. Don't think that a man can just always spend time with his family later. Yes, the days go by slowly, but the years go by quick, and our kids are gone in a heartbeat. And so be careful with your demands for time. Secondly, a minister must be faithful to preach the word. A minister must be faithful to preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Notice how Paul instructs Timothy. And notice what he calls to witness. Paul is calling to witness some things before he gives this charge. And it is a weighty charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. If that's not enough, God and Jesus have been called to witness Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. This is an important commandment because the task and the content are given. Preaching, heralding, proclaiming the truth of God's word is the task. But there are those who handle God's word without preaching, and I'm not talking about a style here. I've heard just about every definition I can. People come to me all the time and say, oh, I love you because you're a teacher, not a preacher. And then two minutes later, somebody will come by and say, oh, I like you because you're a preacher and not a teacher. And nobody seems to know what the difference is. Paul's not splitting those hairs here. He's simply saying that the job of the minister is to proclaim, to herald. That's literally the word here. And, And the picture that would be drawn to mind would be that of a king who sent out messengers into the kingdom to announce a message. Hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king. That's what a herald did. And so we are to herald, but we are told precisely what we are to herald, and that is the word. There are ministers who are giving up preaching because, well, it's not all that important. Dialogue is more important in our short attention span society, or media is a better outlet, or just spending time with people so that you can have influence in conversations, anything but preaching or heralding or teaching in some form or some fashion is being called into uh, to to be used in the church And, and Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and God and his appearing and his kingdom are all standing there saying preach and they're saying not only that we should preach but that we must preach the word because there are many who are still preaching But, as Paul says, they are preaching themselves, or they're exegeting culture, or they're 
using Disney to explain, I don't know. I've seen all kinds of preaching that has no scripture in it. A minister must be faithful to preach the word. And so for the pastors and elders, as Paul calls all these things into witness in this, the charge is serious. In fact, if we rewind to the previous verses we looked at in the first point, uh, 1 Timothy 3.2 says, able to teach. It is the only ability listed in the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy and Titus. The only skill there is able to teach. Bible proclamation must be the work of the faithful minister. What what does the church do with that? Expect it. Demand it. How much time do I have? Here's the reality. This room, with us right now, there are demons here. And Satan would love nothing more than to snatch the word cast from you. You know how he does it? With things like this. It's almost lunchtime. How how long is this guy going to talk for? I, I have places to be. Because if we're not attentive to the word of God, you should know that the demons are, particularly for the purpose of figuring out how to snatch that seed from your life and from your children's lives. Demand it. Expect it. Wait for it. Be patient in it. When we get up here and lay an egg Endure it. Act on it. Don't consider that the sermon is done until you've thought, what must I do with what was said today? This is not just a call to the pastor and what he is to do. It is a call to the church and what it must do. Thirdly, And this one is certainly connected to the next. A faithful minister must handle the word rightly. A faithful minister must handle the word rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best. This word in other places in the New Testament gets translated as make every effort to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Here's the reality. If you've ever been involved in Awana, you know this verse, right? Approved workmen are not ashamed. What must one do to be an approved workman? He must rightly handle the word of truth. And so if we look at this verse's logic, it says, if you handle the word rightly, then you are an approved workman who has no need to be ashamed. But what if we flip that around? What happens if you don't handle the word rightly? You are then not an approved workman, and you have reason to be ashamed. The task of standing before the people of God and proclaiming the word of God is no light thing, and not many of us 
should aspire to be teachers, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. Rightly handle the word and work at rightly handling the word. My charge to the church would be to to know whether or not your pastor is rightly handling the word. But here's the trick. How do you know if your pastor's rightly handling the word? You have to rightly handle the word. And if you can't rightly handle the word, you can't know whether he is. It's not just a task for me. Yes, the church graciously pays us who are teachers, a salary so that we can devote ourselves to study in a way that you can't. I understand that to be true. But none of us are off the hook on being right handlers of the word. Fourthly, a faithful minister must proclaim Christ, not himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, there is a context in which the pastor is the servant of the church, as I told you. And this is one of them. And, And how does the pastor serve the church? We proclaim Christ, but not ourselves, which is pretty broad in scope. Most of us would sit around and say, darn right, Logan, don't proclaim yourself. Do you feel the same way when a preacher proclaims you? Are you content with a preacher who doesn't proclaim himself, but proclaims yourself? We don't proclaim ourselves. That is not the minister, not the member. We proclaim Christ and him crucified I I do my best to almost never, if never, use myself as a positive example in a sermon. First off, I'm just way too prideful for that. And second off, it doesn't do you any good. Because I can't be the hero of my sermon and Jesus too. It just doesn't happen that way. If we proclaim Christ, well, John chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I will, I love this, what a cool picture for the church, John chapter 12, you can write this down, I should have put it in my notes, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, here it is, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Make that demand of your pastors, your ministers, your elders. And when we fail at that, remind us. Send us a text. This says, John 12, 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We proclaim him and not ourselves. 
Fifthly, a faithful minister must embrace suffering. A faithful minister must embrace suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Ah, There's a whole generation of ministers who are trying desperately to figure out how, how to not despair of life itself. But if you engage in the work of ministry... Jesus will leave you in places where the only thing you have to cling to is him. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. There's the point of it. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. And what happens to people who have been delivered by Christ from something they cannot deliver themselves from Him? The the hope changes. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? I hope I'm in a position again where I need Him to deliver me in that way. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. If we proclaim the suffering of Christ, we must not become convinced that we deserve better. Pastors, elders, we did not sign up for a life of ease. We signed up for a life of faithfulness. And sometimes God uses that to grow to a church. To, to, to grow a church. Sometimes he uses ease, but sometimes he uses it to prune it. Either way, wh- whether it's ease or difficulty, whether that's at, at a growth time or a pruning time, we signed up for a life of suffering. Now, what is the church's role in this? It's simple, and I'm going to confess that it's hard not to say this selfishly. Again, that's not an attack, but uh, the reality is my charge to the church Don't be the cause of our suffering. Don't be the cause of our suffering. For your sake, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be unprofitable for you. Don't don't be the cause of our suffering. It's not good for us, and it's not good for you. Sixthly, a faithful minister must be faithful to an equipping ministry. To an equipping ministry. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. That's one office. We can talk about that later. And I think this is chronological. That the first thing God gave in, the, uh, in order to form the church was apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, and now shepherd teachers. And what purpose did he give them for? Verse 12 of Ephesians 4. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Pastors and elders, the pastor equips the church ministers. Church. Did you hear the second part? Our task is not to do the work of the ministry. Our task is to equip you 
to do the ministry. Seventhly and finally, a faithful minister must be faithful to work towards maturity. Not just his own maturity, but the maturity of the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim. There it is again. We proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may, in order that we may, with the purpose that we may, present everyone mature in Christ. Pastors, elders, do not settle for immaturity in the body of Christ. Do not settle for shallow things. Do not relegate the deep truths of God to small groups in other times. We need to present everyone mature. To the church, I would charge us with Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews isn't saying we ever get past the gospel. He's saying uh, that, you know, there's a song recently I heard on the radio. I'm not going to remember exactly the words, but basically the chorus goes something along the lines of, you know, I just want to go back to Jesus loves me, this I know. Does Jesus love you? Yes. Do I want you to know that? Yes. Do I want you to stay there? No. I want you to know more than that. You ever meet a two-year-old that acted like a two-year-old? What did you think of that two-year-old? Probably not a whole lot. Like, that's normal, right? You ever meet a 22-year-old who acts like a two-year-old? Or a 42-year-old who acts like a two-year-old? What do you want to tell that person? Grow up. You're not two anymore. You're 22 or 42. And I think that's a little bit of what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Y'all are still needing milk when you should be eating meat. You're 42, acting like you're two. Grow up. The church must desire to grow up. And the pastor and the elder must lead the church towards maturity. Don't, don't settle in your walk. Don't settle for immaturity in your knowledge. Don't settle for immaturity in your lifestyle. Don't settle for immaturity in your evangelism. Don't settle for immaturity in your hospitality. Move towards maturity. May we all be a church of people moving towards spiritual maturity and taking others along with us. May we be a church that loves the Word of God, that proclaims the Word of God, that heralds the gospel to a lost and dying world, that demands the preaching of the Word, that prays for its leaders. May we be this kind of a church. And may God use it as we plant and as we water, as we sow, and as we reap, may he use it to bring about incredible growth in his people in the church and for the spread of the gospel. Father, we confess 
that we cannot do this on our own. We confess that uh, that we need you to work in us. That you are the one who gives the growth and the increase. And Father, we... uh, would you make us content in our role, in our insignificant role as planters and reapers and waterers, and just be content to get to see you bring about growth that we cannot bring about? Would we be a church submitted to you, faithful to you, to your plan, to your means, to your ways, for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our